0: When I was thinking of the program, um, I don't like marathons, but I thought what we would do is go through the twelve steps and what the twelve steps, what each step would mean to each individual who's gonna be coming up and speaking, what they what that step means to them. And since I'm not gonna go on anymore, I'm gonna I'm gonna bring you our first speaker is Gene F from New Jersey. He'll talk about the first step. Hi, my name is I'm an alcoholic, I'm a grateful alcoholic. I uh, say that because being an alcoholic has given me a sense, really, or gave me a sense for the first time of who I was. Uh, And it answered a question that uh, somebody asked of me uh, a number of years ago. I had just taken a pair of scissors and cut his necktie off, and he said, Gene, Gene, what's the matter with you, Gene? And at the time, I didn't think there was anything wrong with jeans. I said, "Harry, you've been wearing that necktie for 30 days. You've got to uh, get a new one." As I said, I didn't say they, they uh, asked me to uh, talk about the first step, and that's probably because I know I had so much trouble with the first step, and that I really have to struggle with the first step probably every day of my life. The first step, which we admitted we were powerless over alcohol; that our lives had become unmanageable. Uh, when I uh, first came to an AA meeting back in late 1971, I uh, knew I was an alcoholic, and I would uh, readily have said, "I'm an alcoholic." After all, uh, I was a doctor; well, I was a pathologist, a uh, doctor. Uh, <laughs> we don't call them doctors, doctors as much we used to back then, uh, and. I knew that if you uh, had a grand mal seizure because you didn't get enough to drink, and if they put you out in the waiting room for a CT scan to find out what kind of, or where your brain tumor was, and then you had Frank DTs, that uh, this was a sign of physical dependence upon alcohol, and therefore you were an alcoholic. I did not uh, at that time know what the first step was, but I certainly would have told you two things. One, I was not powerless over alcohol, and my life was not unmanageable. Uh, and in fact, I had to spend some seven or eight months constantly trying to prove both of those two points. I to say that my um, enablers, denial, deniers, who uh, treated me uh, during that first admission, uh, following the seizure and the DTs, um, had a hard time uh, coming to grips with the fact that I was an alcoholic. And my discharge diagnosis from that admission was acute gastritis. I don't think that would happen these days. I got to that. I want to say briefly how I got to that point. Um, I think I was trying to control alcohol uh, from a very early age. I the first memory I have of uh, having a drink was sometime around seven or eight at a holiday party, uh, probably Thanksgiving. All of the bad memories of Thanksgiving. And at that time, I had a small amount of blackberry brandy. I do remember that. I was put to bed upstairs, and people laughed about how Gene was drunk. Uh, I didn't like that. I also didn't like anything else that went on around uh, those holidays. Uh, my mother's brothers and my father uh, would start the day off fine. They would get drunk, and the day always ended in awful rides home with everybody screaming at everybody else. And I said at that time that I wasn't going to do that. And I did not have another drink until I was 19 years old. I have this um, distinct memory of my mother's older sister, at May, uh commenting uh, when I was in my early teens that I didn't have any of the uh, wine that the other teenagers in the uh, family were having at these parties. That's the kind that become alcoholics. I didn't say that uh, she ought to know because everybody in her family was. Um, for some reason, at the age of 19, I guess I thought I was safe. Uh I'd gone that far. I wasn't going to be like my father. I wasn't going to be like my uncles. Uh, and I was in a terrible mess in, in my internal life. Uh, I had just graduated from college. I had learned up to that point to do only one thing in my life, and that was to take tests, and to test them, and to do very well on them. Uh, I uh, was obviously much younger than the people around me. I had very few friends. Most of those were people I had known from early childhood. And I was totally unsocialized. I was scared to death of uh, women who were, you know, several years older than me, the ones I had around me. And I just was not functioning, except as a student. And when I started to drink, I had that uh, sudden magic uh, sensation that people, uh, I've heard about in these rooms an awful lot, that suddenly I could talk to people, I could socialize, I could date. And unfortunately, it didn't last very long, perhaps four to six years when I began to really find that the uh, sensation of being high was... Uh, much more important than all of the things that I thought I had wanted up until that point. So uh, I rapidly uh, started to drink, uh, basically, uh, all the time. In the last year of my residency and my two years in the Air Force, uh, I think I was drunk every night and uh, most of the time during the day. Uh, it was interesting that... Uh, you were able to do that, or I, I was able to do that somehow. Uh, and no one, uh, threatened me, no one tried to put me into treatment, no one tried to fire me. And, uh, I remember when I was in the Air Force, uh, my first year I was at, uh, Cameron Bay in Vietnam. And I was, uh, had a real hard time because the, the ration card system there, uh, was somewhat limiting and I had to steal a lot of alcohol from other people's rooms. Uh, and, I played poker with a couple of people, and that's the first time anybody ever said anything to me, only I didn't realize it at the time. They uh, mentioned, uh, they were, I guess, MSC people, uh, that the uh, patients at the hospital had uh, formed this wonderful AA group, Uh, and they were doing just so, such wonderful work with the alcoholics on the facility. They never said, Gene, would you like to go and see what's going on over there? Uh, And I certainly wasn't ready to take the hint. Um, when I came back from that, uh, my Air Force experience, I uh, was in a situation where I had uh, no pretenses of being able to handle anything on my own. I certainly um, uh, didn't know how I was going to survive, and I went back home. And that's in both ways. I went home to Mama. I went home to uh, the residency program where I had been trained. And for some bizarre reason, they took me back and then i drank for another 3 years and it got uh, worse i drank uh every day as i said i had blackouts i drove home in blackouts i tried to murder somebody in the blackout and that i came out of one one day with my hands around my father's neck and two policemen trying to pull me off him uh i stole i uh I drank only stolen alcohol because I was saving money to pay off the IRS when they finally caught me because I hadn't filed taxes for three years. And I also stole a car. That is, I uh, walked away from the car that I had, uh I didn't walk away from the car, I walked away from Maryland with the car and just never bothered to pay any uh, uh the payments. And when they finally caught me, fortunately I had enough money to uh, pay them and they were happy to let it go with that. At any rate i uh, was uh in this situation totally out of control, and all I was doing was drinking and that's when I had the seizure, and that's when uh, things began to change, as I said, the uh, people uh, said I had acute gastritis, but they did call a psychiatrist to treat it and the s- <laughs> The psychiatrist, I, I will always be grateful to, uh, because although he didn't really uh, help me as a psychiatrist, he uh, made it a bargain with me. He said that he would see me two days a week if I would go to AA meetings three days a week. And he even called AA. And somebody from the Caduceus group in New York came to see me, uh, and he took me to my first meeting. At that first meeting, uh, two things that were really noticeable to me. One was that a full professor in my department walked in the door, and as I tried to sneak under the table like that, uh, he said to me, gee, I didn't know we frequented the same dives, and that was wonderful. Uh, that may be the first time I really related uh, to anybody in my department. Um, the other thing that I noticed was that there were all these signs about God, and God and I were had parted company uh, in college or before college. Uh, I certainly was not about to uh, forgive him for the children's crusade and any number of other things that I resented him for uh, just to get sober. Um, and in fact, uh, I rewrote the uh, steps leaving out God. Uh didn't help. I went to those meetings for, um, I guess, seven or eight months. I, I can't say exactly because I don't know really when that first seizure was, but really nothing came of, uh, I, I heard, I, I, that I, I didn't hear. Um, what I was doing uh, over those eight months while I was being admitted to the hospital periodically for repeated seizures uh, or just for uh, acute anxiety um, was controlling alcohol. As I said, I knew I was physically addicted. I knew I had to have a certain amount uh, to keep from having seizures. And I knew I didn't want to have uh, the experience of passing out uh, while I was driving. And I didn't want to have uh, the experience of passing out in the middle of work. So I worked at eight months at finding that dose of alcohol, the magic dose, that would keep me from convulsing on one hand and passing out on the other. And the first time I uh, faced powerlessness was when uh, July of 72, I found I could not uh, find that dose. There was no um, safety interval. I, the dose that I needed to keep me from uh, convulsing was the dose that would make me uh, pass out. I called the psychiatrist and uh, said, I've got to do something. And it, it's very interesting that uh, he put me back in the hospital, and that was the first time that anybody in my department said to me that I had to shape up or ship out. Uh, and I later asked them, why did you uh, finally threaten my, me? Uh, and they said, well, you know, we were afraid that you would kill yourself if we threatened you. And suicide had never been anywhere near, the, at least the forefront of consciousness, all I had been thinking about was surviving and being able to get my dose. At any rate, I started going to AA, really going to AA. I was able to fire the psychiatrist uh, when somebody in the program uh, mentioned that he hadn't uh, paid his taxes for five years. And uh, when I asked him, well, what did you do? He said, I paid him. And I did. And I that if I could talk to my psychiatrist about everything, and I did, except for that one fact, I never told him about that, because I didn't think he could deal with uh, a felon. He might be able to deal with uh, an alcoholic, but not with a felon. I realized that I didn't need him, at least not at the time, and I started going to AA for real. That was powerlessness, and I really accepted the powerlessness uh, over alcohol at that point. The fact that my life was unmanageable uh, took a couple more m- months of listening and going to meetings, and my life uh, became a life. Uh, over the next several years, I uh, had friends. These people in AA were the first friends I had ever had, really, in my life. Uh, I socialized with them. I was able to make friends with people outside the program. I got married. And amazingly, that uh, saying, you know, came, came to, came to believe, came true, and I joined the church. And my favorite coincidence story is that when I went to join the church, uh, I had to be interviewed by an elder, and he asked why I wanted to join this church. Uh, wow. I told him the story. He said, well, how come I don't see you at any of our meetings? And I was interviewed by the only elder on the session. I'm the only alcoholic on the session. Uh, I'm now an elder of that church, uh, which is, is amazing to me, uh, uh, to consider what I was like when I came into this program. And I question, had I taken the first step after all that struggle? Yes, I had. Had I worked the steps after that? Yes, I had. Is it possible to forget all of that? And the answer is, yes, it is. After about 13 years uh, in the program... I really stopped going to meetings. It was somewhat gradual. But um, in 1986, I moved out to New Jersey. And Bill Daniel, who I had known from the Morristown meetings and from uh, our gym in New York, where we uh, exercised together, uh, had Lauren call me and invite me to one of the local meetings here in New Jersey. And I was way too busy. And I didn't go. Possibly the uh, biggest... uh, Problem uh, I had was not the fact that uh, in the last year I had left the meetings, I had also left all of my friends in New York, and practically all of them were AA people. And they would have known, I'm sure, when I got to be as crazy as I did at the end of another year. I was the new kid on the block. I got involved in all kinds of uh, projects at work, some of which I was totally unsuited for. And I became a, an emotional mess and forgot everything about uh being powerless. Um, and one night at a medical society uh dinner, I had a glass of wine and nothing happened. The next month, I had a glass of wine and nothing happened. And that weekend, I drank two quarts of vodka and I was back out. Uh and it wasn't just that I was drinking again. Uh, I was totally self-sufficient again. I began to withdraw from my partners whom I hated, from my wife who really didn't understand anything. Uh, and I was trying to run the show uh, all on my own. My partners whom I hated. Uh, called me on it. I went to an outpatient rehab, and I had 15 years in AA. I knew as much as those people in the rehab, I thought, and uh, everything except the fact that I was powerless over alcohol and everything else in my life, and I was going to get well on my own. So, I conned them, did manage to stay dry for nine months, but then had a... Uh, large glass of 95% alcohol, and fell down at work. And I got into, uh, was forced into rehab by uh, Dave Canavan's people, and I'm very grateful to them also. And I was self-sufficient again. For three weeks, I thought I was fooling everybody. And then at the um, peer review, uh, I was told I was uh, intimidating, dishonest, uh total non-participant, and my counselor said that he would rather be dead than be Gene. Because there was nothing in Gene. And he was right. And that night I felt like suicide for the first time in my life. I have the notes where I was debating whether I should drive into a bridge abutment or use my shoelaces to hang myself in the doorknob. I uh, recently autopsied some lady who had done that. Um, and... That really was both the worst and maybe the best night that I can remember uh, in my life because that really uh, showed me that I was powerless again, that my life was unmanageable. Um, and I was able to uh, talk to the people in the rehab, my peer group, for the first time and I began to reestablish some contact with human beings. And the one I think I felt the worst about was I had totally cut myself off from my wife emotionally, physically, and uh, uh, we threw things at each other. Mink coats, cars. She threw a swimming pool at me, gave me a swimming pool so that I would get sober. Uh, all of these things that meant nothing. Um, and since I've been back, it's about five and a half years now, I have been going to meetings almost every day. And every day I have to tell myself that, uh, not that I'm an alcoholic, that's not good enough, that I really am powerless over alcohol, that I cannot deal with alcohol, you know, they break it down to that very simple step. That Because if I say I'm an alcoholic, well, that's a physical addiction. Uh, it may be mental uh, obsession, it may be uh, an emotional disease, but... Somehow I can deal with that, and I can run it all on my own. But I have to remind myself every morning that I cannot drink, because I am powerless over alcohol. And, you know, my life has gotten better than it was in that first period of uh, sobriety. And I hope it stays that way, and I'm going to work this step every day. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jean. And for step two, I'd like to present Van Kay.
1: Good morning. Uh, I'm Van. I'm a recovering alcoholic and addict. I'd like to say what a privilege it is to stand before you and speak at this meeting. And I want to thank everyone that's here for giving me that privilege the second step yes uh, came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity Uh, that was probably uh, the hardest step in my life ever to take I was born of alcoholic parents they were functional and alcoholic and I'm sure that when the sperm met the egg my destiny was Mm -hmm. sealed Uh, Another alcoholic was born Although it would take me almost 50 years To come to terms with that fact As I grew up I encountered the things in my house That a child does When there's active alcoholism in the house The Jekyll and Hyde transformations The arguments The abuse The sometimes violence But every once in a while Would be uh, a moment of nurturing And loving kindness certainly always inconsistency in the home. I grew up um, knowing that I was different, knowing that my family life was different, that other people had a different life at home than I did. I grew up never being comfortable anywhere. I grew up swearing that I would never, ever, drops of alcohol would never pass my lips. Somewhere in all this, um, I developed an avid passion and love for horses and riding, and I think as I look back now and the times that I went to the barn and was there with the animals were probably the only moments of security and maybe normalcy that I had in my life when I was a youngster. I remember my father coming to my junior high school graduation, and he came late, and he came drunk, and he came disorderly. I lost my father uh, when I was 14. Uh, He died of the cardiac complications of alcoholism. And his autopsy went on at great length to describe his cirrhosis. Of course, that was never talked about in the family. I went from high school to nursing school. And nursing school was a critical step for me. I learned uh, three things there that I would carry with me for the rest of my life. The first one was that I had intellectual ability and that I was capable of intellectual achievement. Now I had never done this before in high school, so this was a removal thing to me. I also discovered that you could hide behind intellectual achievements and that you could use something else for your identity. Uh, in my senior year, uh, along with peer pressure and everything else, I had my first taste of alcohol that passed these lips that would never see the light of day. However, I did and again, as I've heard so many times in this room, I felt warm, good, complete. I felt okay. I felt as if I fit. I was an alcoholic from the first sip. Uh, I never drank on a daily basis, but I always drank for that nice warm oblivion. Um, the third thing that I learned in nursing school was the use of dexedrine, our medical uh the school doctor did not like little chubby student nurses, and so dexedrine was handed out freely uh, to anyone uh, to, who needed it and certainly was encouraged for those of us who were chubby. I then went on to uh, Columbia University for my undergraduate work. Um, I decided to go into medical school and be pre-med, and there I was armed with my alcohol, my dexedrine, and the ability to intellectually achieve and hide behind my achievements. I remember uh, one morning in a uh, dissection lab, uh, and I came in after a really heavy night's use of uh, of drugs and alcohol, and my lab partner, who was also pre-med, turned to me and looked at me with my shaking hands, and he said, I hope you're not planning on being a brain surgeon. <laughs> it was there. It was all there. Uh, I was there early in my disease, but the warning signs were there. I have a letter from the assistant dean of Columbia University. He sent me a letter. He said, you know, I was going over the files of our pre-med students, and I just wanted to let you know how remarkable your record was and is. I still have that letter. I don't hide behind it anymore. How could anyone with a letter like that have a problem? Certainly not me. Uh, I met my husband-to-be, a wonderful man uh, who was a Ph.D. student at Columbia, Uh, I was admitted uh, to the uh, medical school of Albert Einstein in the Bronx. Uh, We were married in my first year of medical school. Uh, I remember medical school as uh, working hard, uh, not doing much in the way of drinking and um, drugging, but working hard. Then I graduated and then we moved to Puerto Rico where I tried valiantly to do uh, two internships, but my physical health failed. I was really uh, almost confined to the house because of my physical disabilities. And yes, indeed, the old escape in the mood, changing drugs and liquids uh, took over and flourished. And one day my wonderful husband came to me and he said, I don't know who you are. You're not the woman I married. I can no longer stay part of this marriage. And he divorced me. And then there followed some years of struggle and when I came home and trying to do uh years of uh internship, years of residency, um, I woke up one morning to feel great emptiness and to know that I really didn't feel much like living. I was really chronically suicidal. I looked back on the failure of my marriage and uh I still, though, had that passion for riding and horses. That was the last thing I had. And I was taking riding lessons. And I went out this one morning for a riding lesson. And in the group before me was this beautiful animal, this beautiful horse. She was gray, a light gray thoroughbred, and she had a black mane and tail. I'd never seen anything so beautiful. And I knew, I knew looking at her, she was my horse. She was what I've waited my entire life for, and I put her on the spot. Her name was Babes, and I used to stand by the field, and I used to watch her play, and she'd run, and she would gallop, and she would buck, and you just knew she enjoyed every moment she had on this earth, every breath she took. And I knew that she knew more about life than I did. I also knew that my drinking was interfering with my taking care of her in the way she should have been taken care of. And so I came into this wonderful program for the first time. Um, I came in, got my life straightened out, stopped drinking, had this wonderful sponsor, And I remember when it came down to that um, higher power stuff. And I said, oh, this will be a snap. I'm a card-carrying Lutheran. And I've been in a hundred churches and a hundred choirs. And no problem. No problem whatsoever. Little did I know. Then one day, when I was feeling well and cocky, I went to my sponsor and I said to her, you know, if I'm so weak that i have to be part of this very rigid structure program in order to stay sober then maybe i shouldn't have a medical license so maybe i better go out there and prove how strong i am all by myself and like all good sponsors she said well gotta do what you gotta do and i left the program and of course i fell i fell mightily many times the relapse occurred the prescription drugs set in. than six blocks away from my home, I would get lost. I would have to ask people how to get back. I remember getting lost driving to work, a place I had worked years. One night I was three hours late because I had ended up in southern New Jersey somewhere and I didn't know where the hell I was. And they covered for me, my friends. But finally, one day, I was reported for inappropriate behavior. Thank God. I too uh, became a member of Dr. Canavan's club and was uh, forced to go away to rehab. They made it quite clear that if I didn't, I certainly would lose that job that I had and of course uh, I would certainly lose my license and my livelihood and everything else. So I went grudgingly, tearful and I remember as if it were yesterday I was in my room and it was a cold, windy, rainy night in the fall and I was all alone in my room and I looked around me and all my achievements all my titles all my degrees all my pride all my willpower all my ego and at nothing I was dying, and I remember finding myself on my knees, and I remember raising my hands above and saying, yes, yes, I believe, because I knew that if I didn't, I would die. That night of my rebirth was approximately 10 years ago now. And my babes, my wonderful babes, she was with me 14 years by my side. In the third year of my good sobriety, her time came, she had cancer. Uh, My friend said to me, uh, she knew she could go now because you were okay. And like she was there for me every day of her life, I was there for her on her last day. And I held her. To her last breath. I was clean, and I was sober, and I was prayerful as I sent her to the Creator, thanking the Creator and this wonderful animal for the gift of my life.
0: Thank you very much, Van. For step three, I bring you Jeff A.,
2: <clears throat> Hi, I'm Jeff. I'm an alcoholic and an addict. Hi. Um, it's a miracle that I can come up here without a drink or a drug. And that's because I made a decision to turn my will and my life over to the care of God as I understand Him. In this program, it's a WE program, so I know that we made a decision to turn our life over to the care of God as we understand Him. Uh, a little background about myself. Uh, I'm a pharmacist. I'm 52 years old. And uh, I went into recovery when I was 50. My father died when I was 10. And it was at that point when God went out of my life. I had uh, approximately nine years without any fathering. And I adopted a number of fathers that would be surrogate fathers that either would uh, abandon me by leaving or by passing away. I had my first binge of drinking when I was 16. Uh, it was a New Year's. And my mom had gone out on a date, and she said, uh, I just don't want you to get drunk. And uh, I said, well, what is that? And she said, well, just don't mix your drinks. And I figured that's uh, not mixing gin and not vodka, so I had everything separately. Gin, vodka. And uh, I managed to get tremendously drunk. And the thing that I can remember about it, besides getting violently sick, is that I liked it. When I was 17, I went into pharmacy school. And in the chemistry courses and the scientific courses, I did quite well. And in the second semester of my first year, there was a course called philosophy, which I had no grasp of and really could not understand. And I was flunking the first course. And I figured, well, I'll manage to take it over the summer course. And um, just before the final, an upperclassman gave me a a pill. He said, this should help you to study. And I promptly went to sleep. And about a half hour later, I woke up. And not only did I read philosophy, I read the Daily News, New York Post, the New York Times, and I said, wow, what is this drug? And um, I asked him, and it turned out to be Dexedrine, which, similar to the uh, second speaker, was free and easy in those days. This was in the 60s. And uh, by the time I graduated pharmacy school, that's all I could think about was taking a test and having some Dexedrine, because this was the joy of my life. It opened and expanded horizons that I never thought would be possible. And uh, this was the start of my addiction, although there were many periods of not taking any kinds of medication and or alcohol. I remember studying for my pharmacy boards and managing to take dexedrine. And uh, I worked for my first number of years at the Mount Sinai Hospital in New York and um, managed quite well, except when I got promoted to supervisor, it seemed a little too uh, difficult to just cope, and I started taking Librium calmed me down quite nicely. And then, um, six years into Mount Sinai Hospital, an opportunity came to buy my own store, to which I did in New Jersey, and uh, a new horizon opened up for me being my own businessman, and I became a little more nervous. So not only did I take Librium, but I managed to, or I started to get these headaches, to which Starbun seemed to work quite well. Before long, I was a Darvon and Valium addict, and I realized that I had some kind of a dependency. This was about two years into owning my own pharmacy in 1974, and I sought help through a psychiatrist, and uh, he said, yes, you definitely do have a problem, but you're not an addict. And um, I suggest that you stop taking the medication, but you shouldn't do it immediately. I think we should put you on a wean program, of which I went on for about three months, and then I was relieved of... uh of this dependency for a short period of time, but I continued to drink and never felt that I had a drinking problem. And every time that I drank, I felt good. Every time I took, as I mentioned in the past, a Librium or a Valium or a Darbonne, I felt good. So what could be bad? Um, In 1976, I got the first of many kidney stone attacks, to which I still suffer from them. As a matter of fact, in 1993, I passed four kidney stones. Um, and the miracle of that is that uh, in those four kidney stones, the most pain that I pain management that I took was Tylenol, and got through all of them and actually passed the stones. But in 1976, I had this first stone attack, and uh, rushed over to the emergency room and um, got a shot of morphine, and I remembered that I liked it, and uh, this categorically went on. I liked the drug. And as my pharmacy progressed, the store got bigger and bigger and bigger, and we had to move to a greater headquarters, and sure enough, I just wasn't coping. And the headaches came back, and I found a new drug called Fior- Fiornal actually. And Fiornel, uh expanded to um, Fioracet with Darvon, with Valium. But I was one of these people that um, was smarter than, than the other people, and I was not going to become an addict. So I managed to take Darvon on one day. Fiora said another day, I would go home and drink at night, but I wasn't getting addicted to anything. Uh, the kidney stones progressed and I finally got a prescription for my own Demerol injection to keep at home just in case uh, I would have to administer the medication myself. And all along this whole period of time, at this particular point, I wasn't taking anything illegally because the doctors that I would go to uh, all agreed, yes, these are real physical manifestations and you do have problems. Plus the fact that I had the pharmacy and I could just make a phone call and uh, get my own prescriptions. I had a candy store right at my hand. Um, by the time 1992 rolled around, not being an addict or an alcoholic, my day consisted of expanding from the set and Fiornal to now Tylenol with codeine, then Vicodin, then Percodan, and Xanax, and Ativan, and now I couldn't sleep. And when I couldn't sleep, so I started taking barbiturates. And when I woke up in the morning, thinking that I was, uh, not thinking that I was in withdrawal, I took other medications, expanded narcotics, and I, by the time I got to work, I was sleeping, so I went back to my original drug, the amphetamines. In 1992, I started having blackouts. And I said, I need help. So I felt that I was gonna have my first taste of honesty, and I met with uh, an internist and told him all the medications that I was taking. And I felt good about my honesty. And he called me up two days later. And he told me that I was doing something called polypharmacy, to which my denial got very... To my denial, I got very angry at him. And I said, polypharmacy, that means that I'm going to many pharmacies to take drugs? And he said, no, that you're taking many drugs from your own pharmacy. <laughs> and... Uh, I said, well, I think I'll have to look into this then, and I sought help through psychiatry. I told the psychiatrist all of the different medications that I was taking, and she said, we're going to manage you. And she did for one full year. She managed me with a maintenance of Xanax, a maintenance of whatever pain medications that I needed, and um, I was content. I was telling everybody I was getting better. In 1993, my blackouts continued. And in May of 1993, on a Tuesday, I I have two children and I took one of them to the airport to visit their grandparents in Florida. And I took them in the morning to Newark airport and I opened my store at nine o'clock. And at 10 o'clock at night, I couldn't remember which child that I brought to the airport. So I called um, Florida up expecting that I had taken my daughter to the airport. And when my son answered the phone, I said, what are you doing there? And he said, Dad, are you all right? And I said, sure, I'm fine. he said, Dad, you brought me to the airport that morning, and I had no recollection. On Friday, May 7th, I happened to be off because I was working the weekend, and a miracle happened. I did something that uh, I've done almost a good part of my life. I opened the phone book, but I had no idea while I was opening the phone book and I started to look under rehabs, and I saw a place uh, listed as Fair Oaks Hospital. And fortunately for me, they had an outpatient center in Paramus. And uh, some kind of peace came over me, in which I really had no idea of uh, about the steps. I had no idea of, of really addiction or alcoholism. And I went for an evaluation, and um, I told them what I needed. I said, uh, look, I'm a pharmacist, I work 12 hours a day, I'm off Monday evenings, I'm off Wednesday evenings, uh, these are the medications that I'm taking, so see if you can find a program that fits for my, into my schedule. And um, I gave them the list of the medications that I'm taking, and the nurse evaluated me and she said, I'll be back in about 10 or 15 minutes. The, the Fair Oaks Hospital at that time was in Summit, New Jersey, and she came back and said they feel that you should go for inpatient treatment. But it would be for just a short time. And I said I would consider that and um I went home, told my wife about it, and yet another piece came over me that I just couldn't understand. And by Monday, um I had checked myself into Fair Oaks Hospital, just with that miraculous turning of the uh, of opening the phone book. And uh I have to assume, like all good addicts, I emptied my medicine cabinet that morning, um, not down the toilet but in my mouth. And um went in quite stoned, drunk, and and drugged. And I came to on a Wednesday, and um, they said, why don't you come to this uh, group session and group meeting? And I saw uh, a poster of 12 steps and 12 traditions, and I said, well, where do I go? I, I really don't belong here. Uh, they said, well, why don't you just sit in on the meeting and see what you can get out of it? And I heard people talking about... Uh, Hi, I'm so-and-so, I'm an addict. Hi, so-and-so, I'm an alcoholic. And I said, well, I'll sit through this for this period of time. Uh, the detox program was approximately 14 days, and people were going home after seven days, and I managed to stay there for 16 days. I had to get rid of barbiturates. I had to get rid of narcotics, the opiates. I had to get rid of the benzodiazepines, and it took the full 16 days for me to get rid of all of that. But uh, to them and to myself, I said, I really don't have to get rid of alcohol because I'm not an alcoholic, to which I said, just stick around for a while. Um, fortunately, I was discharged, and with the understanding that I would go to outpatient um, aftercare, and um, but also, more importantly, that I get to a meeting. And um, this was the most important thing to me, was to get to a meeting, because this is what I heard other people were doing. And I got out on a Wednesday, um, May 26th. And the first meeting that I had seen was at the Fort Lee Jewish Center, and it turns out that there was a Jewish holiday, and there was nobody there. And I said, uh, I wonder if this means relapse. And well, uh, all of a sudden, a car drove up, and I said, I'm Jeff, I just got out of rehab. And the fellow said, well, you need to get to a meeting, and I'm going to bring you there. And that was the first recognition that I had that a power greater than myself, uh, excuse me, that I had was turning my will and my life over to a care of God, because As far as I'm concerned, this person came out of the blue and guided me to my first meeting. He eventually became my sponsor. Um, I gave up my pharmacy license for a year. I thought I was going to get it back in six months. I met with the Board of Pharmacy six months after I had voluntarily surrendered um, my license, which was the best thing that could ever happen to me. And when I met with the Board of Pharmacy, I felt quite good. I made a good um, presentation, and they said, that you should stay out a year, and by this time, I was going to the caduceus meeting and sharing this. They reassured me, and I was able to turn my will and my life over to the care of God, and I realized that this was the best thing that could happen to me. I went into rehab on May 10, 1993, and on May 10, 1994, I got my license back, and I started networking myself. I called a friend of mine up who owned a pharmacy in Jersey City, and asked if I could just work there to get a feel back of pharmacy. And he said, geez, a fellow from Rite Aid Pharmacy was in today, and uh, um, I told him about you, not that uh, you were an addict or an alcoholic, but that uh, you might be looking for a job, and he said to call him up. And I called him up, and I got an appointment on Wednesday afternoon. May 10th, 1994 was a Tuesday, Um, and May 11th was a Wednesday, and I met with Rite Aid, and by Thursday I was hired. And th- this miracle of turning my life and my will over to the care of God started to evolve for me. And I started to work for Rite Aid, and I've been with them for a full year. Um, and miraculous things have happened to me. There are no coincidences. Um, my life has turned around. God bless you. Um, and, and even something like that, to me, is turning my life over to the care of God. It reminds me that there is a God, and I had to say, God bless you. Um, my life is a miracle today. Uh, I enjoy this program. This program has given so much to me, the ability to be able to give back, be able to speak here. I woke up three or four times during the night, as I usually do, and I waited for the anxiety, anxiety to come over myself, and it didn't, because I have turned my life over to the care of God as I understand him. There's an area where I haven't, and that's golf. I found that out yesterday. Um, Any time that I think that I can make a good shot and I can control it, it goes that way and it goes that way. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to speak to you.